A great philosopher of the internet once said, Always be yourself. Unless you can be Batman. Always be Batman. While neither of us are Terry McGinnis, and will likely never be Batman, we can live vicariously through him in his many comic adventures. Welcome to Bat Books for Beginners. Welcome to Bat Books for Beginners. My name is John, and today I have a special guest, Tobias Panchin from View from the Gutters. Hi, everybody. And we will be covering, for episode 144, Gotham Central in the Line of Duty, which covers the first five issues of Gotham Central. So we will jump right into Education Alley here. Um, I couldn't find this. This is an acronym that, that uh, Greg Rucker or uh, Ed Brubaker used called OTs. I, my presumption is that that stands for overtimes, it like overtime shifts. Maybe it didn't seem to fit in because I thought that as well. And it didn't seem to really fit in at that point to me that it was overtime because that's what was my first thought, too, was like overtime or overtime shifts. Um, but I couldn't find anything else. So that highly likely was it. It just didn't seem to fit with that conversation to me at the time. That That was what I took from it based on context clues. So. I mean, because barring that, I can't imagine what else it would be. Yeah, Lieutenant Probson says that he's working on these, so I don't know if that's maybe um, approving them or assigning them or, or what the case. Because that's a point, uh, a conversation point later on in the series about overtime in uh, the soft targets storyline, but here and in that story too, it just seems like if they have something going on, they just continue working on it, and whatever overtime you accrue, you put on your timesheet. So it didn't seem like there was any real. You needed to ask for it kind of thing going on. So I'm not entirely sure what that was, but we'll go with overtimes. Um, and then in issue two, we have some some more vocabulary that we've seen before. Skell, that's one we see fairly often in Bat Books, actually. I mean, I, the number of times we've run into it covering Bat Books for Beginners or in Arc Reactions, our other podcast, it's probably four or five times now. And I believe we'll see this again later on in the series as well. Skell is a slang word for criminals. Um, which kind of fits with the noir aspect to this setting for uh, Batman. Yeah, this is one of those kind of antiquated words that I think writers really like to f- uh, throw around. You used to hear the word frail being thrown around for women, especially more in like the 80s and 90s, but you still do see it from time to time today. And I just think it's one that stands out that writers go, oh, that's a cool word. I'm going to use that a lot. Do do we know what scale is short for? Um, I didn't find that when I, when I was looking it up. I mean, I, I'm sure it has some derivative. It might even be from like Germanic or, um, Celtic or something like that, that could be just a word that means something in another language that we've, uh, co-opted as we so often do with English. Um, but I don't have that handy. The next one here is QRT, which is the quick response team. And what I found interesting when looking this up, it's also sometimes called SWAT, which I thought was a separate entity, SWAT being special weapons and tactics. Um, I didn't realize that those two were related as they are in a lot of, uh, a lot of police departments will use SWAT rather than QRT. They aren't separate, like SWAT does both. Um, cause I, I have an, a military background from being in the National Guard. Uh, when I was younger, and we had QRF, Quick Reaction Force, which was a group of people, how it was generally two, but it could be more, that are basically on call. 
So they have to be there at the compound ready to go if something comes up and they have a vehicle that's always ready to go and they can go out and respond to anything that comes up real quick. And then if any extra people are needed, they can be roused from their bunks or, or whatever the case may be. So that's what I think of as QRF or QRT has nothing to do with SWAT, which is, okay, we've got a situation we need to send a team in to clear the building. You know, that's, that's a separate thing in the army. I mean, everyone's trained at it, but there's, you would set up something differently if you're going to do room clearing than what QRF would, would respond to in general. Right. So I pulled out my handy, uh, or bum, especially a beggar or revolting vagrant. And that is from the Dutch word skelder, meaning to cheat. Yep. And like I said, it's also been co-opted to mean criminal. Right. Uh, Obviously. I mean, we're talking about a couple of different generations of coming from the Netherlands to the United States and then being used in one We're getting it from the, the noir novels and then them getting it from street parlance. Right. From what, like in the forties and fifties, what was common every day, which is what they were basing their novels 10, 15 years removed on. Exactly. Um, last one we have from issue two is the Miller Auditorium at Gotham State University. Most likely a reference to Frank Miller. I mean, yeah, that's pretty obvious. There's not really any other famous Millers in the Batman universe. Um, you want to tackle the next one there? Uh, sure. So in issue three, we have a bunch of warrants being issued. Matt Idelson was an editor for this story in many of the Bat books. Nachi Castro was an assistant editor of this story, as well as many of the other Bat books. And Shelley Bond is the recently, as of this recording, dismissed as CEO of Vertigo Comics. Uh, excuse me. She was recently dismissed as the CEO of Vertigo. She was hired as an assistant editor by Karen Berger one month after the Vertigo imprint was formed in 1993. And she worked her way all the way up to CEO. Yeah. And I've heard nothing but good things about Shelley Bond and the work, also Karen Berger, and the work that they've done with the Vertigo imprint. So the situation is still a little unclear as the time of this recording exactly why she was let go. But that's the most recent news for Shelley Bond. Uh, in addition to that, we have Brian Michael Bendis, who's a comic book writer mostly for Marvel, but did write Batman Chronicles number 21 back in the year 2000. Will Dennis, who's an editor for Batman. And then Cameron or Dave Stewart. Cameron was working on Catwoman at the time. Yeah, I think that's the more likely reference. But Dave Stewart is another well-known name within comics as well that it could be. We also have another name check here with the Kane County Morgue, named after Bob Kane, the co-creator of Batman. Uh, And then the medical examiner in this issue uses entomology, not etymology, but entomology, to determine the time of death. Entomology is the study of insects. And this is something that you see a lot on shows like Law and Order, where they're studying the insects that uh, start eating human bodies after they passed away and use their life cycle to determine what the time of death was. Yeah, I, I, I attribute it more to CSI, but this is a conversation Joe and I had when we were talking about Bruce Wayne Murderer about whatever one is your favorite, they're all kind of the same type of show. It's just whichever characters you connect with most. So to me, it was CSI and not Law and Order. But yeah, Law and Order does the exact same thing. I'm 90% certain those are, those are the same shows. One police procedural show. It's all Law and Order to me. Law and Order, CSI, SVU. Uh, NYPD Blue. <laughs> there we go. Uh, we also have a reference to Bobby Fischer, and I wanted to include this one because Bobby Fischer's always been a, a person that's a, been of interest to mine. I played chess as a kid. Um, 
He was an American chess grandmaster who became the 11th world chess champion, and many consider him the greatest player of all time. In 1972, he captured the World Chess Championship from Boris Spassky of the USSR, and he refused to defend his title in 1975, and it went to Anatoly Karpov by default. He then became a recluse until 1992. Um, there are a couple good movies on this if you want to learn more. Uh, Searching for Bobby Fischer, which came out in the 90s, I want to say, and then Pawn Sacrifice, which came out last year, I believe, in 2015. Um, which dives into much more depth about the World Chess Championship, that 1972 to 1975, those occurrences. Actually, it starts a little bit before then as far as the lead-up to that chess championship where the, there was rumors that the Russians were kind of dodging dodging him and, and using team tactics and trying to prevent him from unseating their champion. Um, so it's really interesting stuff if you have at all an interest in chess. If you don't, it's probably not interesting. Yeah, the Russians take chess really, really seriously, far more than the United States does. And much like the space race, there was a long, long conflict between the USA and the USSR and later uh, Russia over who had the greatest chess champions. And I actually remember watching Searching for Bobby Fischer for the first time and not knowing that Bobby Fischer was a real person. Uh, and if you've ever seen that movie, it's about a young boy who's being mentored in chess by this older man who's kind of a jerk. And I, during the movie, I turned to my dad and I'm like, I bet that old guy's Bobby Fischer. And he was like, no, no, he's not. One thing I remember when chess kind of hit really big, was, this was, oh, 2002, 2003. ESPN aired the uh, Kasparov versus X3D Fritz matches on ESPN. Not the whole thing because they ran so long, but like a three-hour chunk of it. And I think I might still have one on a VHS tape somewhere that I recorded. Um, but that was kind of the height of chess uh, of recent time, and it's kind of fallen out of the public view again. Yeah, you know, it comes and goes. Uh, personal interest of mine that I wanted to share with you guys. Uh, we'll move on here to issue four. We have Tino's Bar and Grill, which is the cop bar in this story and in the rest of Gotham Central. Also a real bar in Houston, Texas. I mean, uh, it's a common name, so there's got to be a place that has a Tino's, right? Yeah, I would be honestly surprised if that was the only one. Uh, then in issue five, we have the homeless guy calling uh, the employers of the babysitter carpet bagging mother expletive. Uh, and a carpetbagger is a Civil War term uh, for a northerner who was coming down to South post-war during the time of Reconstruction, usually trying to seek personal gain. So, you know, these were northerners who were coming down to the South, which had been largely destroyed, and essentially trying to exploit poor southerners during this Reconstruction process. Yeah, and and... The alternate definition of that is a non-resident or new resident who seeks private gain from an area, often by meddling in its business and or politics. So that's kind of a more general term to take it outside of that specific origin for carpetbaggers, which was the American Civil War. Yeah, and this is always a derogatory term. Yeah, I, I always knew that. I didn't know the uh, that etymology. Yeah, etymology. There we Not go entomology right there's no bugs involved no i mean maybe if you've got a dirty carpet bag that's true uh and then we had one more term that was used in this issue uh csu is doing a pcr on the firebug suit pcr stands for polymers chain reaction 
PCR can be used as a tool in genetic fingerprinting. Tiny samples of DNA are isolated from a crime scene and can be compared with DNA from suspects or compared with a DNA database. Such procedures can identify or rule out subjects during a police investigation. And that's the crux of every CSI episode. (laughs) Yeah, basically. That's just all that they do. All right. Well, that's it for Education Alley. We'll dive right into our talking points. Um, I didn't really have a good, bad, or other for this, um, so they're just in an order I thought would be interesting. So the first thing I wanted to discuss is, and this is a question to you, Tobiah, do you feel like there are too many characters in this initial story uh, of the, the comic? Because I counted, and there are six pairs of cops, as well as the leadership of Aikens, Sawyer, and Probeson in this story. And if you need a list, I can scroll down to the bottom of the notes. Nope, I'm just scrolling through here. So it's important to note, and I hope that I have this right. Um, this book is written by two different authors, Ed Brubaker and Greg Rucka. And my understanding is that the split, it's not them collaborating. One is writing the day shift and the other is writing the night shift. That's correct. And of those teams, I think four of them were on the night shift and two of them were on the day shift. So right. they would come together to collaborate for like a couple issues. In this story, it was issue one and two. And then one of them would take the next story. So in this case, it, Brubaker took the next one. So we get the night crew in three through five. And then six through ten, which was the next story, was the day crew and so then that was Greg Rucka's story. Um, so you're, you're absolutely right that they kind of split the crews up and had different sets of characters in each, in each of those. And that makes perfect sense. But in this particular story, which is mostly the night crew, there, I mean, there's a little bit of overlap with Crispus Allen and Renee Montoya who are on the day crew. And I think one of those other detective pairs was on the day crew, but four of those pairs are on the night crew. And for a very, for an intro story, it, it was a little bit confusing to get the characters down. As you continue reading, you get it more and, and you learn more about each of the characters. So I, I, I'm not really saying it, it's a fault. Um, I just think it might have been better for what was going to be a very long ongoing series to slowly introduce these additional pairs. Right. And that's kind of what I was working my way up to. Yeah, it's a lot. It's hard to keep people straight. But I think it's one of the strengths of this story that you don't necessarily need to keep them straight. Going through this initial five-issue arc, you don't necessarily remember who everybody is and whose partner is who and what their names are, but you understand their roles and you get a sense of what their character is. So when I see short-haired blonde police captain, whose name I don't remember, she comes in and has a scene with somebody or gives a piece of information, I can kind of accept that and move on, and I don't feel confused if that makes any sense. It does. Um, I'm a little bit worse at um, remembering key features uh, within the art, so it was a little harder for me. And I was going bo- more off of voice, and it took me longer to get the voices of the characters. Eventually, you do with a lot of them, like um, Driver, who's kind of the one of the main focuses, Driver and Romy, mm-hmm. are kind of the main focus of Brubaker's stories. And I know Renee Montoya and Crispus Allen from other Batman stories. So I've, I've already got their voices and Harvey Bullock as well, who's not really in this book, but, you know, comes and goes because of where he's at after the Officer Down storyline. Um, but some of the others just took me longer to get their voice because they're not in it as much. Yeah, absolutely. And this is one of the things where the art style of this book is a little bit of a detraction. And I use that in the softest terms possible. 
because normally when you have something that is illustrated or animated, consider the strength of character design when you can tell exactly who a character is based only on their silhouette. And in the, the case of this story, it's very realistically drawn, and so everybody looks like a person. And so just based on their silhouettes, it's hard to tell people apart. You don't have those really clear indications of like, oh, this is the really huge guy with the giant muscly arms, or this is the lanky woman, or this is the short squat woman. Like, You don't get those sort of visual cues, and so it's a little bit harder for you to very quickly visually distinguish between the different characters. Yes, and we're dealing with detectives here, except for Sarge, who's kind of maybe the most visually distinct one because he's wearing a uniform, you know, a, a sergeant's uniform. And he has a mustache. It, that too. But I mean, with, we're dealing with detectives, so they're all wearing suits, which is a very, um, there, there, there's a lot of sameness within suits. Mm -hmm. um, and it would be the same thing if we were dealing all with police officers and they were all wearing police uniforms. So the fact that we're dealing with the detectives and they're all wearing suits, that's what makes them a little harder to distinguish versus Sarge, who's wearing a sergeant's uniform because he's really the only cop that we see in the precinct. Now, we see other cops, you know, at, at the scenes and stuff who are working at with the detectives. But as far as our kind of main characters, um, he's the most distinguishable um also skin color. He's, he's African-American, um, which uh, we will talk more about that. I'm not sure if it's this story or, or a future story about the, the representation amongst uh, all these characters. We have um, Montoya, who is, I believe, Hispanic, uh, that officer who is, who is African-American, and multiple women in, in this story. So there is quite a bit of diversity amongst them, but yet it's still sometimes difficult to distinguish until a few issues have passed as far as who is speaking, whose voice I'm hearing in my head when I'm reading it. Yeah. But we do get those beginnings of characterization. It's just because they tried to feed us so much in the first five issues, we only get a tidbit here and a tidbit there instead of maybe more for each character, but then they don't get as much for several issues and we get other characters in that spot. So it's a different way of doing it in giving us little tidbits for more characters um, or smaller tidbits for more characters, but we get them more regularly versus larger chunks. But then those characters don't get another uh, growth opportunity for many issues until it's their turn to be kind of spotlighted again. Yeah. And honestly, I'm kind of glad that they did in that way because as much as it was a little bit confusing off the bat, it made the station feel like a vibrant place. You know, this is a hub of activity. There are things happening here 24 hours a day. And it felt like that. You know, you had all these other cops who were all doing their own cases. And it made it feel like Gotham Central was a real happening place. Like there are so many stories that are going on all the time here. And we're only seeing kind of one thread. And we're seeing these characters as they weave in and out of it. And I think that it really gives the story a lot of energy. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. That That's another thing that, that we will be talking about as far as seeing it from one perspective, um, which is something unique to to this type of, of story, I, I would say. Um, let's move on to the talk about, since we're talking about these characters, the camaraderie that they have. I think and we get snippets of conversations that are not important to the plot, but they show a lot of times that these people are close and have formed relationships as coworkers. So you'll like walk in to the building uh, after being outside for a scene 
and there'll be the end of a conversation either on the phone with a character with one of their loved ones or between a pair of, of, of the detectives. And that that conversation has literally nothing to do with the main narrative of the story, but it, it shines light on the character for those characters. And that's that kind of those little tidbits we were talking about of kind of giving them their voice um, as well as showing us that this place, this is a this is a place that you could walk into and it would not feel like a, a television set or like a movie set. It would feel like you walked into someone's place of business. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, we'll move on then to our next one, which uh, is the tone of the book is set very early on. With, with the first two issues, we get Mr. Freeze killing an officer easily and setting a tone for how this book is going to go through the rest of, of, of the issues. Um, the police will handle their normal duties, and some of the lesser villains, like Firebug, like the Firebug impersonator, uh, but Batman is needed for villains like Mr. Freeze. And it, it's an interesting dichotomy there that the the police do what they can but it's still very much like a subtext or a, or a, a cloud hanging over them that they need the batman whether they want him or not yeah and honestly this is one of my favorite parts of this series with superhero stories and stories set in superhero universes we so often have this kind of top-down view of the universe you know we understand these grand cosmic forces and how they all work together and who these heroes are and how their powers operate and it's hard it's easy to forget that the average person on the ground doesn't have that kind of perspective on the world that they live in and this story does a really good job of conveying what it's like to be a cop in a city like Gotham where you have all of these maniacs running around with crazy technology or magic powers or God knows what else. And there's a lot of day-to-day stuff that they can handle, but there's a lot of stuff where it's just completely out of their depth and they know it. And then you have a figure like Batman who's there and it just rankles them that that he they need him and they know that they need him but it doesn't make it hurt any less because they feel like this is our job we're supposed to be equal to this and we're not and i think that that conflict is really central to what this series is about and what sets it apart from something like csi or law and order that you have that additional element Right. It's, it's, it's like where in the, the conflict in CSI or law and order would be, we don't have anyone who can help us. We have to get this done. And that's kind of the motivating factor. Whereas here it's, if we don't get this done, Batman's going to come in and prove that we, or make it look like we can't get this done. Where in reality, if they had more time, maybe they still could. It's just Batman got to it and felt it was worthy of, of, of his attention. And the police have a number of different attitudes toward Batman. You see that with um, the police officer who gets killed at the beginning of the book. They're relaying a story about him uh, a little bit later where he would put Batman's name up on that warrant board that we were talking about in Education Alley and assign cases to Batman. And someone, uh, one of his superiors told him to knock it off. And he's, he said... He said, it's demoralizing. And he said, that's the point. That's why I'm doing it. I'm doing it to motivate us because we don't want Batman to get the credit. We want to get that. We want to, you know, be the, the heroes. 
of the story. And then you have Driver who saw his partner killed by a villain that he's no knows is there and interacts with Batman and maybe feels like this is a conversation we've had on, on other uh, episodes where maybe this villain was created because of Batman. You know, maybe it's Batman's fault that this guy's even here at all. And therefore it's his fault that his partner got killed, you know, or, or Batman didn't come to save that guy. Why didn't Batman save that guy when he saved this other guy? You know, so he has a bitterness towards Batman versus just a, a frustration that Batman is doing their job better than they are, which his partner kind of had. Yeah, absolutely. And this this actually dovetails nicely with a conversation that I've been having a lot recently talking about superheroes as a genre. And I think we're seeing fewer and fewer stories that are pure superhero stories, or let's say we're seeing less interesting ones that are pure superhero stories where it's, you know, action man and action man has his secret identity and his day job and his love interest. And then Dr. Chaos shows up and action man has to go fight Dr. Chaos and save the day. And that's kind of played out to a large extent. And one of the reasons why adaptations like the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies work as well as they do is that they're blending other genres with superheroes both of the last two Captain America movies, as much as they've been superhero films, have been political espionage thrillers. And I think one of the strengths of this book is that it is blending superheroes with the cop procedural story. And the mixture of those two elements together is what makes it so interesting. You know, you have these C-list villains like Firebug and even Doc or Mr. Freeze to an extent, he's certainly not an A level villain. Well, I mean, until um the animated series for for sure, he was no one really knew what to do with him. And then uh Paul Dini in the animated series made him a more elevated villain than than he had been. So yeah. I think at this point he's more elevated than he would have been, say this was two thousand two, so say twenty years ago, uh or even 10 years ago, which would have been around the time of Batman, the animated series, he wouldn't have been as big a deal as he is now or, or at this point in the comic. But you're right. He's not on the Joker's level. He's not right. on Penguin's level. Um, Absolutely. And and the fact that you can take a character like that and just throw him into this po- police procedural story and he suddenly becomes this incredibly lethal threat where they're like, every hour that goes by, more people are going to die. What are we going to do about this? Like, it makes for an interesting story that you never could have gotten if this were the Teen Titans. Right. And and when you talk about um, blending of genres, it's not really a concept outside of, you know, knowing that this book was coming up and, and ha- I was going to have this type of a conversation. But pointing pointing that out makes me realize that one why I love Detective Batman is because of that blending of genres and also because it doesn't happen that often or that well. And so we have excellent authors for that with this story. Less so about Batman being involved. He's kind of tertiary in this book, which is fine. I mean, that makes it even more unique. But when these writers, for instance, when they cover Batman, when they're writing Detective or or Batman, they're writing Batman in that same kind of way. And those are the Batman stories that I personally love the most. Yeah, absolutely. In this story, Batman is not a character. He is part of the setting. He's part of the background against which these cops are operating. You know, he could just as easily be 
some force of nature. You know, if we don't deal with this, then, you know, a hurricane's going to spring up and take care of it or whatever. Like he is something that they can't engage with. He just exists in the world and it's something that they have to deal with. There's, there, there's this weird danger in turning on the bat signal. Like they're summoning a demon or something like that, casting a magic spell and hoping that the best is going to happen. And maybe, you know, they'll summon up the Batman and he'll take care of the bad guy for them. But maybe in the process, you know, they're going to anger the mayor's office or they're going to unleash some worse hell and it's going to ultimately going to come back and bite them. And we see that um, dynamic brought up in, in this story and we actually get something introduced that hadn't been a thing in the past, which is they have an unpaid intern named Stacy whose job it is to turn on the bat signal because none of them are supposed to touch it. And we'll see as this, this series goes along that certain cops just make a unilateral decision and kind of twist Stacy's arm to go turn on the bat signal and then get chastised for it later because I guess the police commissioner is the one who's supposed to tell Stacy to go turn it on. So it's like, run it up the channels and figure out if we're going to call Batman on this one. And then I'll decide and tell Stacy to go turn it on. But both those elements of it's not an official Batman is not an official uh, member of the force or um, approved method of doing the police work is something that, that they've, they've talked about before, but also now you've got this added element of they haven't, they have to have an intermediary because this is supposed to be, no, we're not doing that. We're only going to do that if we absolutely positively need to, and there's no other way. And it, it, it gives a new dimension to the bat signal, which was kind of a, I, I don't even know its origins. I, I, that, that would have been something interesting to look up is like, when did it come to be? Is it a Batman 66 thing? Is it uh, one of those things that came up in the comics or in the animated series? Like who decided that we need to get Batman's attention versus Batman figuring all this stuff out as the master detective that he is. You know, I want to say that it goes back to the 50s at the very latest and possibly even the 1940s, but I don't know off the top of my head. Um, you had this period with early Batman where they were introducing a lot of these concepts like Alfred the Butler and Commissioner Gordon and the Batmobile. And I feel like it's got to be a at the same time as all these other elements are being introduced, but those were kind of coming in slowly through the forties and the fifties. You would think that, and I, I, I tend to agree with you, but then look at the animated series introduced the grappling gun. Like that wasn't a thing until 92, you know, the, the grappling hook thing that is in Batman 66 is what he was using up until that point. So he had to throw it, you know, and, and the, gun action to it was added in 92. So a lot of times we think this stuff is older than it actually is because we're looking back at it with, you know, 75 years of its existence behind us. We don't have the context of when this stuff was released into publication. So, so the first appearance of the bat signal was in detective comics number 60 in February, 1942. Okay. Much older than I thought. Yeah. I, I, again, you know, this is the part of Batman that Bill Finger was largely responsible for that he did not get credit for for a very long time. And thankfully now is starting to get the credit. Yeah, absolutely. But he was in large part responsible for introducing a lot of the elements of what we think of as 
Batman through the early 40s into the mid 40s, things like the Bat Signal and Commissioner Gordon and Alfred the Butler. Robin, Joker. Yeah, all of those elements. Yeah. Thank you, Bill Finger. Yeah, thank you, Bill Finger. Um, so we, we've already kind of been talking about this, but a little more in depth about the examination of the police department's relationship to Batman. So, uh, Probeson is not one of the ones that we talked about. He's one of the lieutenants, one of the, the, uh, authorities. Uh, he thought having, well, he's the one, I guess we did talk about this. He's the one who thought having him up on the officer board was demoralizing, um, and made the cop who was killed at the beginning of the story take it down. Again, we talked about the signal representing the department's failure to bring in one of the criminals. So, I mean, it, these are the elements that make this book stand the test of time and not and not make it fall into, oh, it's just another procedural. Like, the, there's things brought to this book that can lead to discussion, whereas you, you, end, up, you end watching an episode of Law & Order, what, how much discussion is there? Generally, not a lot. You... you Everything is kind of wrapped up in that 42 minutes. Most of the time, you know, you have those Law & Order episodes where, you know, at the very end, they find out that the guy that they thought had done it, who they tried and convicted for it, didn't actually do it. Or the case ends up going unsolved because they, you know, completely, they had this person 100% to rights and it turned out that some key piece of evidence was wrong and now they have no idea whatsoever. Like, there are those ambiguous uh, episodes of police procedurals where it's not a clean ending. And you're right. It is a really interesting element of this series that you always have Batman there in the background, like this idea of, well, if we don't solve it, the Batman will, which they, I mean, they even deconstruct that or kind of contradict themselves a little bit later on. in one of the stories we're going to talk about later where, you know, you have a cold case from five or eight years ago that the Batman never solved. Right. I don't know that it was on his radar because of a piece of evidence. And this is a, this is a future episode we're talking about. Um, yeah, our, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about episode. it more later. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it is interesting for, for the authors how they have to also balance um, when would the police be able to, or when would Batman, because they actually have something about this in this story that we're talking about where Driver wants to try and solve the freeze thing without getting Batman involved. And um, I forget if it was the commissioner, Aikens or Probeson. Somebody says, you think that uh, us just not asking him is going to make him stay away from this? Mm-hmm. So so that there is that element, too, of that the authors have to deal with, not so much the characters because, you know, they're doing what they normally do, but the authors have to make craft the story in such a way that it seems plausible that the Batman is not a part of it when they don't want him to be. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that it comes up a lot when you're writing a story where you want something to happen in the story and you have to come up with a plot contrivance where this would happen and there's no easy solution. And you hear people complaining a lot about various stories where it's like, oh, well, if they had just done this simple thing, everything would have been solved. Why didn't they do that? And this story does or this series goes to some effort to think about where the Batman would be involved and how and finding those stories that they can tell where police work is the thing that's needed and the Batman isn't going to be involved with it because why would he? 
he wouldn't necessarily know about this random thing that happens. The other thing that, that you, you did bring up that I, that I do want to touch on briefly before, before we wrap this episode is uh, the art. Um, you said that you found it kind of difficult to distinguish the characters. Well, I wouldn't say difficult to distinguish so much as not immediate ob- not immediately obvious in the way that something that was more stylized would be. Um, what I found interesting about this is this art reminded me of kind of a 60s or 70s style, both with kind of the, the depth to it. It seems a little two-dimensional, kind of like the, the older four-color comics were. Um, and also the coloring is very muted in this, and more so than other books around this same time. So I found that very interesting. And as people know from listening to this show, I'm not the biggest person when it comes to the art. Um, I realize this medium is, some would say, more than half, but at least half of the art. And I can appreciate it, but it's not one of those things that I dig in very deeply. I, I appreciate it very much at a surface level. But this art really did stick out to me as something different from what I had been seeing around this same time with the other Batman titles. Yeah, it definitely feels really unique, especially for the time. And part of that is the really heavily inked line work. Um, but another big part of it is the color, which is by a guy named Matt Hollingsworth, along with Noel Giddings and Lee Luffridge. Uh, Matt Hollingsworth is a very prolific colorist, and he's recently been especially notable on the Matt Fraction and David Aja Hawkeye run. He also did The Wake with uh, Scott Snyder. Um, and he's a name that you see around a lot. In fact, I think the only person who is more prolific than him is Jordi Belair. Okay. Jordi Belair is probably the only person who is more prolific than Matt Hollingsworth at this point. Um, but he is very, very good at that sort of muted pastel style that you see in this book. And you also see pretty extensively in Hawkeye. And if you kind of put those books side by side, you'll notice that they look really similar in a lot of ways. Um, and I like, I really dig the style. It's, it's very cool. And it does a lot of its heavy lifting with palettes. You'll notice looking through this book that different scenes are lit in really different ways. And, you know, you'll have a lot of like light colors and yellows all throughout the day. And then when you go into night, there's a lot more purples and greens going on. And this is something that Hollingsworth is really, really good at doing. Um, you can notice it a lot in Hawkeye. The, the color purple is kind of prolific throughout that series. And it really gives the story a lot of energy. I think it does a lot of interesting storytelling just through the color palette that he's using, setting a tone and a mood to each different scene. Yeah, I, I think you articulated what I was noticing uh, much better than I could. But thank Andrew Chard, one of uh, the former members of View from the Gutters, who is absolutely fanatical uh, about color and talks about it a lot. And he was the person who really got me paying attention to colorists and thinking about who was laying the color down and what it was doing in the story. And it's one of those things where once you notice it, you can never stop noticing it. And I highly recommend to anybody out there who is interested in the art of comics, pun absolutely intended, who the colorist is on stories, 
especially on more modern stuff, you know, in older days before digital coloring really became a thing right around the turn of the century, uh, they were a lot more limited by the technology. And there are still some absolutely phenomenal colorists even back then, and they did some really interesting things. But comics from the last 10 years, digital coloring has really transformed the process, and they're capable of doing things that they simply never could have done in the 80s or the 70s. And it's one of, I think, the most unnoticed strengths of modern comics is that you have such a sophisticated coloring technology available to you and it really gives a strength and an energy to these stories that was not possible 30 years ago and i wonder if the improvement of technology if going from non-digital to digital has maybe overshadowed that improvement or as people just attribute it to the technology and not to the people using the technology to tell the stories better well i think that it's both um i mean even today even with good technology, there are a lot of books that are just not well-colored, not well-lit. Something that we talk about on View from the Gutters a lot is a book, Revival, which is a horror book that is very brightly lit. Everything is very evenly toned. There aren't a lot of heavy contrasts. Things are not shadowed or lurking or foreboding. It's just, oh, hey, there's a monster on the page, and I can see it very clearly. And I think it's to the detriment of that book. Whereas if you look at something like Hawkeye or even this, which was being written back in 2002, the the coloring really makes all the difference in the world. And if you look at this series, and I'm just pulling up a random page here where it's a silhouette of Gotham and you can see the bat signal in the night sky and the night sky has this beautiful gradient going across it. And if you had had that, done in another way where you could see all the buildings and the sky was just a flat tone. Like it wouldn't have had the strength that it did. There's a lot of emotion packed into the color of this book. Yeah. Your, your eye is very much drawn to, they've reached the point where the sun is going down, but it's not fully down yet. And the bat signal, they, they've reached the end of the time they can allot with before they need to call the bat, which is a key part of this story with, with Mr. Freeze. So, yeah, it, it, it definitely is very striking in that aspect. So, yeah, I would highly recommend pulling some of the books off your shelf and looking at who the colorists are on there and really paying attention to what the colors are telling you about the story because it's a hidden secret of comics, I think, that not enough people are in on. Awesome. Yeah, thank you for, for that insight. Um, one last thing before we start our wrap-up, I guess. Um the Gotham TV show. Uh, my hope going into that show, which is now in season two or maybe done with season two, I'm not sure when the season ends, um, is that it would be like Gotham Central. And I think you get some of those elements, uh, the interplay between uh, Harvey Bullock and Jim Gordon in season one. Because I really watched, I watched season one and then I watched a couple episodes into season two and then I kind of lost interest and, and stopped watching it. But you have those two characters that are really kind of fleshed out, kind of uh, examined, and you get to see the GCPD aspects of them before they move on into, well, I mean, Harvey's kind of the character we we knew just a little bit earlier in his career than than the animated series and, and the uh, the comic books where he's 
even more grizzled and set in his ways and, and everything. But he's still well on his way to that in the, in the story. But you see Jim being a detective and Jim be doing a lot, a lot of the people we see in this story doing, but we don't see any other people from this story. I mean, Crispus Allen and Renee Montoya pop in every once in a while, um, but they're not on the same shift a, as Jim and they don't really interact with him, at least in the stuff that I watched. And I was very disappointed by that. Like, it has a number of elements I do enjoy, but I think it's missing the best elements from Gotham Central, and that's what I was hoping that show would be, since we aren't going to get the Batman anytime soon in that show, unless they drastically change the premise that they set up the show with, which is Bruce is 9, 10 years old, so he's not going to be the Batman. Um, unless they change that and jump way forward in time, we aren't going to have the Batman, so I was hoping it would focus more on the GC. PD and it seems to be focusing more on the villains, which is fine, but that's not the show that I was looking for. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't have a lot to add. I haven't watched Gotham. I kind of checked out on it based purely on the premise and the first trailer. And they were leading with this tagline of uh, Gotham before Batman. And that seems to me to be the worst idea you could possibly have for a Batman show is to take Batman out of it completely. Because again, one of the strengths of this series of Gotham Central is that Batman is omnipresent in Gotham. He's always there in the background and you never know where he is. You know, even when, you know, Bruce Wayne has this identity matches Malone that he puts on so that he can move amongst the criminal underworld unseen. And it's often implied that this isn't the only secret identity that he has, that he keeps many identities and throughout this series, I was trying to spot the Batman, looking and seeing, like, is this maybe him in disguise? And this is something that I think I'll talk about more on the next episode. But the fact that Batman could be anywhere and anyone, and the fact that you don't know, I think is something that can't be ignored. He's just always there in the background, whether you see him or not. And I think that's important towards the mentality of the cops in this series. I think it's important towards the mentality of the criminals that you see, that they never know when the Batman's going to burst in through a skylight or a window and take them down. And to remove that as an element of your show, I think fundamentally misunderstands what's interesting about Gotham City. I, I see what you're getting at, and um, I don't 100% agree. I think yeah, there I, are things they could have done, but I didn't see them doing them, which is why I, I left from watching it. But I think there there is something you can do there, but I think you need to be a little bit closer to the Batman showing up so you could build that up, build up the, the Penguin, build up some of the villains, not as many as they have been doing. Um, and then you can switch, flip a switch on the show that that is a natural progression of year and have year one Batman and and continue the show that way and then it's it has a place to go. It feels like it's a very finite um, ability of things they can do with the premise they have set up and the way they uh, implemented that premise. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to be clear here: like I I am not even sitting on the sidelines and poo pooing this thing. I'm poo pooing this thing from like a town over. I I didn't watch it. I have no investment in it. And I could be entirely wrong about this series, but that was my impression from the promo material and what they were saying about the show. 
Yeah, uh, I I agree with some of, some of that. So we'll move on here and go ahead and give our rating for this story. Um, I'll I'll start. Um, I think the story itself is not the greatest. I've read better detective stories, but I think the world building and the elements like Stacy and the really seeing Batman from the GCPD's eyes drag it up from a very average rating to four out of five batterings for me. Yeah, well, I, I'm actually I'm going to disagree with you here. I think that this is the best of all possible stories with the premise that we have here. So I'm going to give it five bat signals just to show you up. Um, I, again, I go back to the the issue of it being this confluence between detective or police procedural stories and superhero stories. And I think the mating of these two elements, especially the way that Rucka and Brubaker were writing it, I think is absolutely phenomenal. I really cannot imagine this book being better than it was based on it being what it was. Um, and I absolutely love it. I, I think some of the, my reasoning may be that I was expecting it to be the best thing ever because of how much it's hyped in my head of, I've heard of this, it sounds amazing, I want to read this. And then when I actually sit down to read it with all that uh, anticipation, it didn't quite meet up to what I had in my head. Yeah, and I think that that's the easiest way to kill your enthusiasm for a story is to set up expectations for it and then have it not meet those expectations. In my case... I look at this story and I think, what could have been better about this? And I can't think of anything. Like, if you honestly asked me, how would you change this story to make it better? I've, I've got nothing. I could not make this story better than it already is. That's not to say it's the greatest comic I've ever read, but it's a, it's a damn fine one. All right. Uh, there, there you have it. So that gives us an average rating of four and a half out of five batterings between the two of us. Um, if you have thoughts on Gotham Central, uh, please go to the page for this show at thebatmanuniverse.net on this episode page, and we would love to hear your thoughts about it. So leave us a comment, leave us a question, um, let me know if I should have to buy a back. I mean, you got about five minutes before we record the December episode, so uh, better get those comments in fast. Hop into your uh, Rip Hunter time sphere, go back in time and burst through our skylight. There you go. No, do not burst into my house. <laughs> uh, burst into the comments page. There you go. Or uh, find my cell phone number and text me, although my phone's off, so I, I wouldn't get it. Besides our page at thebatmanuniverse.net, you can read in-depth comic reviews, listen to the other podcasts that they have to offer, and get all your Batman news. It's a one-stop shop for all things Batman. And if you like what I've been saying and what Tobias has been saying... I have another podcast called Arc Reactions Podcast where I do much the same thing but with a broader section of, of comics so I can pick stories from any comics that exist and talk about them. And uh, why don't you tell the folks about View from the Gutters, your, your comic book podcast. So View from the Gutters is a weekly comic book club. We have about five hosts, and each week one of our hosts picks a trade paperback or graphic novel for us to read and discuss. We cover books from the entire span of comics history across every genre, both superhero and independent, and it's a lot of fun. 
We really appreciate audience feedback and listening and responding to your comments. All right. Yeah. So there's a couple more places that you can hear our thoughts on different stories. Um, our next story for Bat Books for Beginners is going to be Batman Family coming to you next month. And as we have been alluding to, we will be coming back to Gotham Central in our December episode. So if you like, just like Gotham Central, you can come back at that point and get some more Gotham Central. All right. And the credits for this book, it is Gotham Central 1 through 5 from February to May 2003. Writer Ed Brubaker for all five issues with Greg Rucka assisting on issues 1 and 2. And the artist for these issues is Michael Lark, edited by Matt Idelson with Nachi Castro as assistant editor. All right. Thank you guys for listening. Bye. We have a quick announcement here. We've had a good run on Batbooks for Beginners, and we've been at it for just under two years now, but we are ready to move on. We will continue with the podcast through December, but we are starting now to look for the next host of the podcast. If you'd like to host the show, please email tbu at thebatmanuniverse.net. We have about two more years of stories lined up that you would be covering. We've had a great time hosting the show and look forward to whatever the next host brings to the podcast. Yeah, thank you guys so much. And uh, we've had a great time hosting Bad Books for Beginners. (laughs) 